You are listening to the Tech Heads F1 podcast with Bryson Sullivan and Dr. Ops. Welcome to another episode of the Tech Heads F1 Podcast. My name is Bryson Sullivan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Ops. How are you today, Dr. Ops? Hey, Bryson, I'm doing great. It was a great race in Spa today, so I'm coming off the high of that race, and I'm super excited about our special guest today. As am I, as am I. One of the things that we envisioned when we were conceiving this podcast was to create a space not only that didn't shy away from the technical aspects of motorsport, but really tried to focus on them and give people an opportunity to gain insights that they may not have otherwise. One of the ways that we can do that is by actually talking to people who've actually worked in motorsport in general, but also in Formula One specifically. So I'm extremely excited to welcome our special guest for today, Martin Buchan, also known as B-Sport. How are you today, Martin? Uh, thank you. I'm very good. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation, guys. I think you don't really require an, an introduction for most of us here. Oh, thank you. But I know that you have worked in motorsport for several years, worked for several Formula One teams, including McLaren, Force India, and ultimately you know, Racing Point. And you mm-hmm. currently have a motorsport consulting business. And I just have to say right off the bat, you know, one of the things I love about your YouTube channel is that your videos are very concise. They're very focused and they're very insightful. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down watched your videos and become three times smarter <laughs> after watching them <laughs> okay. just because I didn't think of something the way that you approached it. I don't know if Dr. Drops has the same impression. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one great example for me, Martin, was the video that you made on the Red Bull floors where you showed the span-wise expansion of the floor and you explained it so perfectly. And for me, I was only thinking two-dimensionally. I was thinking about the the expansion in the Z direction. And then that really opened my eyes. I thought, wow, how did I miss that? But that was a great video. It's one of my favorites. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, that's basically the concept of this YouTube channel that I explain the things as shortly as possible and in the most simple way as possible. And so that also people that are not in the industry, they just understand that. I think some of the drawings that you've made are also especially helpful. I think a lot of times when we talked about the Mercedes zero side pod concept, we talked about how that exposes certain aspects of the floor that prevents you from being able to use stays in the same way that some of the wider side pod designs have. And you also talked about the importance of having a smooth diffuser kick as opposed to maybe a sharp corner one and how that might impact the pressure distribution. So those are two examples of very insightful videos that you've made. And I'm also trying to use a very basic PowerPoint, basically, so very simple drawings instead of using any technical stuff. I'm also not using CFD, although I could, but I'm just showing some scribbles on PowerPoint, and it's, it's easier for people to understand that than just showing a very complex simulation. So to understand the general things in aerodynamics, it's always important to show it the most simplest way. I am a, a self-professed aero geek, guilty as charged. <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. people, people who know me know I love to see vortices and span-wise load distributions in CFD. So mm-hmm. any chance I get to talk about aero and learn more about it, I'm, I'm happy to do. We have quite a few questions for you today, so I'm, I'm happy okay. that you took the time to actually answer them. But before I do that, we noticed that you did see the Belgian Grand Prix and just wanted to ask you if you had any thoughts on the race and what the impact of the technical directives were or anything noteworthy from this afternoon's race. 
I found it quite impressive how the top speed advantage that the Red Bulls have, so how low draggy that car is. So that's that was really impressive. Also the Williams. It's always such a thing. Top teams develop cars with low drag to have an advantage, and usually in the past, low-budget teams didn't have so much downforce, so they also have less drag, so they're usually quite good in circuits like Spa. It was also the case for us uh, in my Force India time. We had less downforce than the others, so also less drag, which helped us on circuits like that, so that was quite cool to see. Martin, I think one of the things that jumped out to me, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong on this one, is that it seems like the RB18 seems to be quite aerodynamically efficient in that the floors must be quite powerful for the amount of grip that the RB18 has in the high speed corners, but still is able to run a little bit more wing than some of the other teams and still have that top speed. Yeah, exactly. That's also something I talked about in my video before the Belgian Grand Prix. So Red Bull traditionally has a very powerful floor. That's also because of the experiences that Adrian Newey has, who, as I also pointed out in previous videos, he wrote his final thesis during his study time in Southampton already about this topic. He was one of the first aerodynamicists, professional aerodynamicists in motorsports, and he just has this 35 years of experience. And it's also one of the reasons I think that they got less affected by porpoising. So everyone just created a very powerful floor, but Red Bull already knew the real-life problems that would create, because actually in his book he was already talking about some similar effects in the past so they had that in mind and you couldn't see that coming in cfd or in the wind tunnel so they have quite an advantage with their floor as they traditionally do have like in the previous years which then allows them to have much smaller wings and still have the same downforce level or if they have a very powerful engine like in this year compared to the competition they can also drive pretty steep wings still have very good top speed and then have an additional advantage in the corners it's still somewhat strange to me watching Formula One for so many years and seeing Red Bull now known as this top speed monster, right? For so many years, it's always been Red Bull has been incredible at the low speed tracks. They've had so much downforce, but we're sort of lacking on top end. It's a complete inversion this year. And what was so surprising is that they were still fastest in the second sector at Spa as well, despite being essentially fastest in the first and yeah. third sectors, aside from Albon's sort of heroic first sector, you know, in qualifying, they were still fastest. So they just have incredible pace at the moment. So that's, that's really yeah. Uh, impressive to get into but I, I do want to get into some of these more specific questions that we had outlined and kind of to start off with what first got you into motorsports in general and aerodynamics specifically so I first started with motorsport when I was five I started karting karting with my dad basically my dad had a kart I had a kart so I was always on karting tracks that was my first experience with motorsport. Later on, my dad did his pilot license for planes. So I was on airfields and that got me thinking, why do these things fly? So how does this aerodynamics work? And later I did, I was having like RC cars, did races with RC cars. I modified my cars myself. So I had cooling issues. So I created air ducting and created my own little rear wings and diffusers and stuff. So this is when I started with small scale motorsport and uh, aerodynamics. Later on, I was involved in the form student team at my university also responsible for aerodynamics cooling also other areas there i was also one of the drivers so i could experience what i designed there and because of this formula student experience i could get into a endurance racing team in germany at the nurburgring and we were doing four six and 24 hour races with an audi rs4 and this team had significant aerodynamic and cooling issues when i joined them and when we could solve them 
And because of the way we solved it, then other teams approached me and asked me to help them. And this is how I got into this. I was doing this in my free time while working as an engineer for Audi in the wind tunnel, creating road cars. But at one point I was thinking I want to do this full time. So I quit my job at Audi, moved to the UK and then joined Formula One. And, and that's a that's a really great background explanation there. I think, you know, a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in what do I have to do? I have an interest to get into racing, to get into motorsport. What can I do? So you sharing your background there, yeah. I think, is really great with a lot of our viewers. Yeah, I was just going to say this comment that you made about cooling really strikes me because even though we think of aerodynamics as the only things that matter are downforce and drag. This question about cooling is critically important because it impacts the drag significantly. And in one of your videos that really impressed me was one where you described how the angle of the radiators changed, and the shape of the radiators changed over time, and how because they're far more angled than, than vertical now, sometimes it actually pays to redistribute how the air is flowing from front to back. And may, you may even want to add back pressure to certain parts of the radiator in order to improve the flow overall and how it's distributed. I think that was one of the things that I hadn't really thought about before, how adding extra resistance could actually improve performance. And and your videos really gave some insight into that. Yeah, great to hear. (laughs) Yeah, um, because usually in lower motorsport categories, you simply blank the radiator, which basically switches it off in certain areas. But in Formula 1, you just add these shovels at the back to create some resistance, but air can still flow through. So you don't completely switch it off in that area. You just increase the resistance to get a bit more air in the top section, for example, of the radiator. And I think that's a great segue into our next question, which is, you know, you spent time obviously working for Audi and the wind tunnel road cars. You've also done a lot of videos on other series, like, for instance, the LMP categories, mm-hmm. Porsche Super Cup, things like that, as well as Formula One, You've where, where you have a lot of experience. What are some of the differences in, say, aerodynamics or designing for speed aerodynamically in Formula One racing versus, say, some of the other series like Porsche Super Cup or even even what you know you might do as an aerodynamicist working on a road car for instance what are some of the big differences so the biggest difference is that for road cars you only look at straight line aerodynamics and you want to reduce the drag that's the only thing that's important you never look at anything else in racing you basically only look at cornering downforce and you don't care about the straight line at all. So at least in, in the higher categories like Formula One, that is the case. On the Nürburgring with a very long straight with Döttinger Höhe, we still try to reduce drag quite a bit. But the main thing that counts in motorsport is cornering downforce. Very cool. One of the things that always bothered me about cornering analysis for aerodynamics is the wind tunnel is effectively straight right? Mm-hmm. The flow field that it produces replicates what the car is doing on a straight, but you need the downforce in the corners, right? Yeah. So th- there seems to be this sort of fundamental disconnect between the data that you might gather in the wind tunnel and how you would actually try to use it. Can you give a little bit of insight into how you translate straight line wind tunnel data into cornering performance? Yeah, that is one of the biggest problems in motorsport because in CFD, you can do whatever you want. You can have a curved domain, which replicates this curved flow you have in reality. In the wind tunnel, you always have a straight flow, but you need both. And then you just angle the car, you give it a certain yaw angle in the wind tunnel, but it's still a straight flow, which behaves differently than a curved domain and a curved flow in the corner. So the teams work with different factors, so correction factors, and some teams got it right and some get it wrong. So sometimes the correlation of CFD is better to reality, sometimes the wind tunnel to reality is better, always depends. 
but that's really up to the teams and especially also depends on the wind tunnel you're using and your CFD tools, how far they developed. But that's really one of the biggest problems. And at the same time, it's one of the biggest chances for low budget racing, because for example, when I was in this endurance racing team, we didn't have a lot of money and we only developed the aerodynamics at the track under racing conditions, which is a massive advantage because you don't have to spend money on wind tunnel or CFD and everything that happens at the real track, you can see immediately like through cameras and flowvis paint and all these kind of things. But if you see it there, it's really happening and you don't see something in the wind tunnel that never happens in reality. Your, your answers there are fantastic. And I think one of the things we try to do on this podcast is really break it down to the lowest levels as far as explaining things. And I think one thing that our listeners might be very interested in, especially at the start of this season, where we had heard a lot about teams having bad correlations between their CFD models, the wind tunnel models, and then on-track performance. Can you maybe explain a little bit to our, our listeners sort of how that works, developing a car first in the computational domain, validating it in the wind tunnel, and then on-track performance? I mean, usually you have a first idea how the car should look like. You design it, you put it in CFD through your standard cases. And then if the performance is good, you build the wind tunnel model and try it in the wind tunnel. And the problem for the teams this year was that they didn't have experience, like real life experience with the real car because it didn't exist before. And that's also one of the reasons why this bouncing came up because no one could see it coming other than the people that already experienced it in the old ground effect era. They didn't really have this real life experience and only when this came in, they could correct their correction factors. So that was one of the biggest problems, but that's also what makes it interesting this year for us to see how different teams are performing. Motorsport aerodynamics is, is so complicated in general, and then F1 is just another level of complexity. What do you think is the most common thing that people misunderstand about F1 aero? Uh, so one of the biggest uh, things that I always hear is the straight line aerodynamics. People always think of aerodynamics in Formula 1 in a straight line, but actually what matters is the corner. This is one of the biggest things. The power of vortices is the next thing, like rotational direction of vortices and what you can do with them. Like, for example, having two counter-rotating vortices creating upwash or downwash in certain areas. So that is quite a common tool in F1 aerodynamics, but a lot of people don't understand it because they can't imagine how these flow fields move. I would say these are the two biggest things that people who didn't work in the industry don't see at first sight. And maybe kind of building off of that, I would ask, you talk about downforce and cornering. What are some of the things that teams can do to increase downforce and cornering? Like what are some of the tricks that you might implement as an aerodynamicist? We've got the uh, the shark fin, is that what that's called the uh, on the back mm-hmm. of the car, right? Which is supposed yeah. to help a bit in cornering. What other sort of things can teams implement? So the thing that this shark thing is doing, let's talk a little bit about this shark fin uh, first, because that's a pretty good example for this. It's basically for open wheel racing. So for Formula One cars, it's pushing the inner front rear wake outboard. So it doesn't hit the rear wing. That is the main cause. In prototype racing, it's completely different because it's it's like a safety factor. If the car is spinning, then the car doesn't lift. It doesn't fly away. So it looks the same, but it's a different. it works differently because prototype racing, you ha- don't have open wheels. You have covered wheels. So you don't have this big issue like with the front rear wake like in F1. So that is one of the factors why teams always go for the biggest shark fin they can have. And the next thing is when you go into a corner, you have a shark fin tip vortex. So at the top, you have like a vortex that's created especially in 2017 that was the case where we had the super big shark fins and then for the teams it was always the decision do i want this tip vortex above the rear wing or below the rear wing 
It's not even to create more downforce, it's just to avoid any damage, these things. As soon as this vortex is hitting the rear wing, it's reducing its performance and you lose downforce. So you just teams are just always trying to save things around the aerodynamic devices in the corner. It's not always about adding it, it's more about not creating any issues somewhere, which also makes it predictable for the driver. And you mentioned wake when you were talking about the front tire wake, that the issues that you have with open wheel mm -hmm. racers. I think one of the questions that we've heard quite a lot this year that, that people are trying to answer is, are these updated aerodynamic technical regulations, which are aimed to reduce the size of the wake to clean up the dirty wake that we might have had in previous cars, are these working? And you know, what influence does the shape and the size have on the performance of a car itself? We could think about the 2018 cars. So if we remember how the cars looked like in 2018, we had these pretty wide cars. 2017 was the first year they got pretty wide and we still had these uh, front wings that were creating lots of outwash. So we had these vertical strakes that just pushed the air outboard in front of the front wheels. We had blown wheel nuts. We had the brake ducts who were shoveling lots of air outside of the wheel rim. So already at the car's front wheel center line, you had so much outwash that you could keep the front wheel weight pretty far outboard of the car. And what then happens is that you have a lot of clean air in the center of the car and you can create more downforce. But the problem for the cars behind you is that it's such a massive wake and it's not really only the wake we usually see, like this flower shape behind the car, which is only done by the rear wing. The wake is much wider because you have this far outside sitting front wheel wake. Mm -hmm. And when all this clean air is being pushed up to create downforce, this dirty air closes in behind the car, and this is where the following car is driving. So the following car is always driving in this dirty air, losing lots of performance, and that's the issue we had in recent years. This year, it's quite dramatic. They can't do this outwash with the front wing anymore, not to that extent. We don't have the vertical strikes since 2019 now, but teams found other ways that are now prohibited. And we don't have blown wheel nuts anymore. And a very extreme thing, I think, is that teams can still get the brake ducts or can still have the brake ducts on the inside of the front wheel, but the air also have to exit on the inside of the front wheel. So they can't even shovel the air out anymore. So there's much less outwash at the front wheel center line compared to 2018, for example. And additionally, we don't have this massively developed barge bot area, these complicated areas behind the front wheel next to the cockpit. And that's why all these dirty air, all this wake stays much closer to the car's center line. And although the teams try everything they can to push this outboard with bodyworks and even mirror stays and everything, all this wake is pretty close to the car's center line. This is being pushed up by the rear elements like the beam wing, the rear wing, although the teams try to avoid it. But what then happens is that the clean air from the side of the car is closing in behind the car. So the car behind can drive in the clean air. So it's a different flow field than we had before. And as the drivers confirm, it's much better to follow other cars now. And we, we see much closer racing like today. Yeah, I think of today and I think of Austria as well. You know, that was just a, a really impressive race. I know we have a, a short list of questions we're trying to ask, but there's so many tangential things I want to ask yeah. you about because you're here. Because one of the brief things, if you have time, is that as I've been watching these cars, I always love looking for vortices whenever I get a chance. And I've noticed that it's been much harder this year to actually see the vortices coming off of the, the rear wing and near the end plate. But I can very clearly see the front wing end plate tip vortex. And once I know what to look for, I see it like very regularly. Was it curious to you or, or interesting that the front wing tip vortex was such a strong flow feature in this year's cars or, or was that kind of expected? 
Um, so I was expecting to see less at the rear wing. I wasn't really thinking much about the front wing because there's not much pressure difference as far as I could see. Maybe just with uh, Kanat at the side, but um, yeah, it's always interesting to, to see these things in damp conditions, but I'm not surprised we don't see it at the rear wing anymore because of this curled down tips we have now. Very cool. Thank you for answering my extra, my yeah, extra sure. questions. <laughs> You know, there have been many aerodynamic developments over the course of the season. Some very cool things that were brought by any number of the teams. Can you maybe highlight one or two of the updates from the teams that really caught your eye? I mean, of course, everybody was surprised to see the Mercedes zero pots at the beginning of the season. But it was kind of expected because they always pushed their radiators so deep into the chassis, compromising the chassis actually for aerodynamic reasons, that something like this would be possible. And I was quite happy to see the rear wing end plate of the Aston Martin in Hungary. So that was quite a cool idea. And I also liked the Mercedes mirror stays, even the very first one they presented this year, which was just a nice idea to use the rear stay to create more outwash to control the upper part of the front rear wake. And then the next iteration with this update they brought, I think, in testing, where this one element became then five little elements that was quite cool. And I also showed in one of my videos how they legalized that, but it's quite a cool idea. And this is this innovative thinking that I like about Formula One. This is how it should be. This is how engineers should think when they're designing these things. So that's really cool. I was going to say, in your opinion, is there anything like intent of the regulations? Because probably somebody who works in Formula One is pretty good at finding the gray areas in the regulations, right? And I think that's mm -hmm. a lot of these things that we talk about as far as technical upgrades and things like that. What is your opinion on that? I mean, as far as I experienced it, you're working in a certain area in a Formula One team. I was in a small team, so I did basically everything from front wing to rear wing. You have a lot of responsibilities, but there's always one main responsibility and you are responsible for that. So you need to know the rules inside out in that one area. And then you also watch very closely what the competition is doing, not just doing the races, also what they might try for one lap in testing or something. So you have to be an expert in that and you have to think out of the box to find every advantage possible. And some people are more innovative there and some are less. So sometimes one team has a good idea. But I also experienced some quite funny things where one team was trying to copy another team because they thought they understood what they were doing, but actually they were doing something completely else, but they copied it anyway. And it worked for them, but it was doing something completely else. So sometimes whole aero departments of Formula One teams think they know what the other team is doing, but they're still wrong. So that's <laughs> always quite quite funny. So when, when I was working in Formula One, sometimes we design something and then you hear about the media or you hear from other teams what they think we are doing, but if I know what we were doing there, it's something completely else. So that's quite funny. I can't imagine how some of the other Formula One teams might think about those of us on Twitter who are who are trying to yeah, yeah. explain what the teams are doing. Yeah. <laughs> to be clear, everything that we always say always has a caveat of this is what I think based on the information that I have or yeah. the publicly available information. It's never guaranteed to be right. No. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that I experienced, because before I was also like reading all the reports and reading everything I could in Formula One technology, when I came into Formula One, I was actually surprised how simple the answer sometimes was. So sometimes it's re we, we had things, for example, just this one little story, we had things where we, we had a, a CFD issue. So we had certain high speeds in a certain location around the bodywork. And because of that, our CFD wouldn't work. So we created a little winglet there, which is changing the air speeds in CFD. So the CFD would work and we brought it to the real car and the media <laughs> and other teams were just speculating, what are they doing there? Why is there a little winglet? And it was only because our CFD didn't work. 
<laughs> you got to fix your compressible flow solver. You got yeah. <laughs> It was easier and much faster to quickly design a little winglet and produce it than just fixing our CFD. <laughs> that is that is incredible. I, I think of all these all these hoops that teams have to jump through in order to come up with solutions. And I think one of the examples of that is these rear wing modifications that we've seen over the course of a season because of the cost cap. And teams can't just manufacture entirely new wings and make new molds mm -hmm. for them. They're taking to modifying, in some cases, literally cutting away the parts of the wings in order to reduce drag, for example, we saw it this weekend. And one yeah. of your videos did a really good job of explaining geometrically how the airfoil sections of the rear wings are designed to have a roughly constant thickness near the trailing edge so that you actually can cut away certain parts of it in order to reduce drag and not drastically influence the aerodynamic properties of it. But one thing that always bothered me when I think about cutting away the part of the wing, I think about span-wise load distribution, right? I think of us cutting away the center part of the wing to reduce drag, but not modifying the outer parts because of the mechanical requirements for the hinge, for the DRS flap. And in some yeah. cases, the, the center requires an anchor point for the actuator. So my question is, doesn't cutting away the trailing edge in the center, but leaving the edges unchanged, doesn't that modify the spin-wise loading distribution and increase the relative loading on the outer bits that could potentially increase induced drag, even if it reduces the profile drag? So usually this induced drag comes from the high pressure area and the low pressure area and the air wanting to go from one to the other. By cutting away this trading edge, you have less high pressure in the center and less low pressure in the center. So you, you have less of this ability for this vortex to be created. And so overall, you reduce frontal area, you reduce drag and you reduce downforce. And we never had the issue that this induced drag was being increased by that. But one of the things that I found quite interesting this weekend was uh, if you look at the Haas wing, you could see how they chopped the trading edge of the flap off without having this special profile that I talked about. So they didn't have the constant thickness. So they just chopped it off and had a massive trading edge. And they just accept the massive weight behind it. In my time, we designed special profiles for that and then just told the guys in the garage, you can chop off like five millimeter, 10 millimeter or whatever you need. So we developed our wings to be chopped off. But also other teams, if they just want to save it or they, they just quickly need a solution, they just chop any wing off <laughs> and just accept the thick trailing edge. We, we've seen, you know, dive planes moved around on the front wing end plates and you see sort of scars of where they used to be located. So there have mm. been all manner of Frankenstein's monsters constructed this season as a direct mm. consequence of the cost gap. And there are also other solutions like I think in Monza, for example, we could potentially even see gurney flaps on the lower side of the wing. So on the suction side which is something they, they used to do in Indy cars, but we didn't really use it in Formula 1 because we wanted to have specific wings for every track, basically, like super clean. But now with the cost cap in place, people have to find new answers. <laughs> so some of the guys in F1 also worked in other categories before, and they bring that knowledge to F1 now. Yeah, Bryson is a self-proclaimed lover of gurney flaps, so I think this <laughs> will probably make him yeah. very happy. <laughs> very good. I am absolutely a lover of gurney flaps. I actually had the opportunity to spend some time talking to Bob Liebeck through a university affiliation. He was one of the first people to actually do theoretical analysis on gurney flaps and actually establish the variation in the optimal loading distribution for a wing for maximum lift and then what the gurney flap does to it and how it effectively mm -hmm. modifies the cutter condition. It's really, really cool science, a really cool way to develop that understanding. Aerodynamics is such an elegant science. It, it sometimes takes mm. a lot of skill and talent to find new things. And something as simple as a gurney flap has all kinds of amazing theory behind it. 
Can I just add something to that? Such a gurney flap is something sometimes saving the flow on the suction side. So some of the wings or most of the of the high downforce wings only work because there is a gurney flap. If you take it off, the air will separate on the suction side of the flap or at least of the last 20, 30 millimeters. And if the team doesn't have a low downforce wing, they just take the gurney flap off. It separates and they just do a flow vis on it to see where it separates and then cut that bit off. So that's also one of the reasons why teams use chopped off wings and that's a very cheap solution of how to get to a low drag wing that is still efficient without separations. And I think something that you mentioned there with respect to the influence that the gurney flap has on the low pressure side of the wing, right? And helping to sort of extend the distance that the flow can travel before it then experiences the adverse pressure gradient and has to separate, right? One of the things that we've seen during the year is that teams are spending quite a lot of time updating, changing the floor edge on the cars. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these floor edges now have very pronounced curls, for instance, along the edge, which, you know, I have a theory is acting sort of similar to maybe a gurney flap to help drive some extraction through the tunnels for outwash purposes and things like that. But mm -hmm. can you maybe comment on the importance of the floor edge and why teams are maybe spending so much time in developing these? I think the best explanation is your hoover. So if you move your hoover closer to the ground, you feel how the suction increases. If you're just holding it in the air, nothing happens. There is no force. But the closer you get to the ground, the more force you experience. And also, that's not a linear characteristic. Like you halve the distance and you have much more force. And that has to do with the sealing of it. So the better you can seal the sides, the more suction you have, the more downforce in that case you have. But if you get too close, you suddenly have such an increase in force that it just sucks the hoover onto the ground and it stays there. And this is what you don't want with, with an F1 car. This is also one of the reasons with porpoising, it just sucks the car to the floor. You have the separation, no downforce, it goes up again and then the same happens again. And that's pretty tricky to get right on F1 cars. So you want to go as low as possible, but at the same time, you don't want to get too low. So you want to have a stiff floor, which is hard to do with very narrow side pods. It's very easy to do with wide side pods because you have le uh, less exposed floor area. Then they created these skidding or this, uh, this skirt, this little strake, this metal strake that the Red Bull has underneath the floor, which is just avoiding it from touching the ground and air can still flow through. And all these little tricks is what we could see in the last half year, how teams developed it, trying to get on top of it. And that's why floor edge is very important. Previously, we only had a big flat floor uh, with a certain angle and a very small diffuser at the back. But now we have these massive tunnels being much more powerful. And if they do the same thing as they did in the last years and just seal the, the side of the, of the floor with vortices, then suddenly they have so much suction that they create porpoising. So that's what the teams needed to adjust now. And now it looks like they are pretty good in it. You mentioned the ceiling vortices, and, and one of the things we talked about in our last podcast in episode two was the 2023 technical regulations, and now how we see that the floor edges are going to be raised. What importance mm -hmm. do you think that ceiling vortices along the floor edge are going to play now that teams are probably not going to be able to mechanically seal the floors? I think it's going to be more important again. And that's also something teams are very experienced in from the previous years, because especially the high rate teams always had to seal the floors pretty aggressively because the floor was so far away from the ground. So they have quite a lot of experience in that. But on the other hand, the floors in the new generation next year will be still relatively close to the ground. So 
teams just know it from recent years and they will have the tools to to seal that but again it's it's interesting to see how they really make sure that they don't get too close and can still properly and reliably seal it without throwing off the driver yeah this does make me think back to the old ground effect cars that we had of yesteryear with the sliding mechanical skirts and how those intercepted the track one of the things that i thought about from an aero perspective is those mechanical skirts always impacted the track at a right angle, right? It was something that was sticking down. It would slide up and down according to the ride height and curbs and whatever else was there. Hmm. When I think about a bending floor edge that can bend under aerodynamic load that may contact the edge of the road, that's a very acute angle, maybe like less than 20 degrees or something like that, as opposed to like a 90 degree angle that the old sliding skirts might have. I was wondering whenever I see acute angles and flow going through them, I'm worried about merging boundary layers and restrictions to the flow, you know, possible separations. Have you ever thought about that? Or is there anything that you thought about in terms of the effectiveness of mechanical ceiling in a situation where the floor edge touches the ground at such a shallow angle? I mean, if you have such a shallow angle, as you say, that it's possible that you have merging boundary layers. So you have a boundary layer at the floor. If this is touching the ground, there is basically no healthy flow going through anymore. But it's such a tiny area and the floor as a whole is such a big area that I think the effect is relatively small. But the effect of the edge touching the floor and perfectly sealing it, uh, I think this effect is bigger than, than the boundary layer effect there. So Martin, you detailed a lot of aerodynamic designs in your YouTube videos. I mean, I think most recently the new GT3 RS, I believe Porsche one for me was one of the really interesting ones, but you've done Formula One cars, you've done different prototype LMP category cars, Porsche cars. What is one of your favorites that you've done? And maybe explain kind of why it was one of your favorites. So in terms of road cars, I would say the Valkyrie, because there hasn't been any more extreme car project than this. And I'm a big fan of packaging. And I think packaging is, in terms of packaging, that's a masterpiece because there's no room left anywhere. This car is so stuffed full of things and there's no space left. Everything is there to create the best possible aerodynamics. And it's also a very different aerodynamic concept, something that wouldn't be possible in motorsports because you usually have to have a flat floor, but the Valkyries actually basically looks like a flying bathtub. <laughs> there's so much space underneath and uh, there's so much air volume going underneath the car. That's amazing. Where Wherever you look, you have always interesting details with every iteration they did. So from the first concept car, the first project prototypes, now the final version. It's It's been really impressive to watch that, how they changed the front wing, this, the floor edges at the side. I was reading Adrian Newey's book where he describes how they started this project. And it's, it's just amazing. I, I know how cars are usually being designed. So I was also involved in the Audi R8 development and seeing how the Aston Martin Valkyrie was designed. Then that's another world. I must say, I've been extremely impressed with the Valkyrie, not only in its normal version, but also the AMR Pro. The first time I saw that, I was sort of blown away by how well integrated the rear wing was and the other changes you know, to the car. I'm not sure what its lap time was around Bahrain, but it was, it was very impressive. It wasn't exactly F1 quality, but it was very, very fast for a road car. What were your, some of your thoughts on some of these other hyper cars that we've seen coming out recently? I just did a video on Koenigsegg. I'm always quite impressed by how Koenigsegg is, is evolving with every generation because they basically started from zero. They didn't have much aero development at first. And right now it's very interesting to see their cars like the Jesko or the Jesko Absolute. 
Gordon Murray's T50 is very impressive because it's such an unusual concept. But if you see the floor, for example, with these kick points and it's, it's really some some very interesting trickery in that and i'm looking forward to see the first like real life videos how the car is working because the concept is, is really impressive and i think there's a lot of potential i agree with you once you have an electrically driven fan that gives you so many options that a mechanical driven fan didn't give you in the past you'll be able to selectively turn it on or turn it off yeah. and as you said you can you can over design the geometry of the kick line to be far too aggressive to maintain flow attachment in normal situations that will only be attached right when the fan is running. So you could selectively turn that off at high speed to yeah. effectively stall your diffuser and cut a ton of drag. Yeah, that is really cool. And then also just blow massive amounts of air into the wake behind the car and then literally creating like a long tail of over car as a short tail. And that's just really cool. Uh, so that's a completely new dimension we didn't really think about before. Also, the McMurtry and Sperling is pretty impressive. I'm still trying to find out more of the details of that. I really wanted to go to Goodwood this year to have a look at the car myself, but I didn't manage to. And now I'm yeah, still trying to get more answers on this one, but it's really cool. That car is really incredible. My understanding is that it makes double its weight and downforce at zero miles per hour. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is an extraordinary machine yeah so i'm looking forward to learning more about it myself it was also one of my most popular videos so far because a lot of people are interested in that and learning more about the technology is just very interesting for everybody yeah and i think it feels like cheating a little bit with the fan cars because these f1 teams work so hard with these beam <laughs> wings and the interactions with the diffusers to drive extraction it's like why not just use a massive fan and just suck it right through you know it's, it feels like cheating a little bit a lot of these things are driven by failure modes so it's not often a question of just what's the outright performance but what would the situation be if you had a failure now obviously there are ways to design redundancy into your system to make the limits acceptable. But I often try to tell people to try to convey to them how extreme Formula One really is. And it's like, well, why don't you make a version of a Formula One car that was totally unrestricted? Well, why can't you just make a Porsche 919 version of an F1 car? And my answer is it would be literally undrivable. <laughs> you know, the drivers are having so much difficulty with their neck strength and neck preparation right now. I can promise you, engineers would design a car that would be incapable of being driven by a human if you let them. <laughs> Maybe we can talk about F-Ducks just for a second. I mean, like, as far as my understanding of F-Ducks, you know, really what you're doing is you're blowing energy, right? Air across the wing itself, right? So you're energizing the flow and thereby also energizing the underside of the wing. Is that correct? So that you can run like maybe a higher, higher camber wing or it's not, it's not that. The F-Duct, it, it really was about drag reduction. That's basically like a passive DRS system. So the flap doesn't move, but you separate the flow. Ah, okay. I got you. So then at high speeds, you're creating that separation and then you're getting the drag reduction as a result of that. Yeah. So you exit air somewhere on the suction side of the wing in a location where the flow will separate. So it doesn't follow the suction side anymore. It just flows basically straight to the back and you have a massive wake behind, but you have much less drag because you don't have that downforce anymore. And you just collect high energy air somewhere at the car where the air is clean, like on the top of the chassis, and you guide it then somewhere to the rear wing. But the thing about F-Duct is you have to understand this, these aero valves. This thing, how it worked was basically that they had this air intake on top of the chassis, and usually this was venting air into the cockpit. But if they put the elbow there, it was closed, and then all this air was going to the back of the car. 
and you have airflow that's usually flowing straight and suddenly this air that is collected from the front is blowing in a certain angle at this airflow which is diverting it into the other pipe and that's how suddenly the air sometimes arrive at the suction side of the wearing and sometimes not so to develop that is pretty tricky it has to do with air properties at these conditions so it's it's working differently with different ambient temperatures and it always yeah depends on what weather you have and then it's it's pretty pretty hard to get right yeah when when the teams first came up with that when we saw what they were doing i almost couldn't believe it mm -hmm. you know, the, the actual complexity of you know effective air resistance to these circuits yeah. to be able to get a flow to the appropriate part of the wing and normally when we think about directing flow somewhere Normally, it's a benefit. Normally, it's to prevent the flow from separating. But now we're doing the exact opposite. Yeah. We're trying to get it to separate. And if I remember correctly, this was the year before they introduced DRS yeah. for the first time, right? And, and it was a kind of a reaction to the teams doing all these expensive and, and crazy things and potentially dangerous mm -hmm. things to reduce drag. The FAA is like, let's just, let's just formalize yeah. something <laughs> to prevent people from driving down the straight at 320 kilometers per hour with one hand on the wheel. Yeah. And then Mercedes came up with this double DRS doing an even crazier thing than uh, guiding the air from the rear wing end plate all the way through the car to the front wing flap or to the front wing main element. So that was quite an impressive packaging job to get all this air from the very back of the car to the front. And then applying this air in a way that it separates the front wing flow just to create this or to, to keep a certain aero balance. And they were blowing that on the underside? Of the wing on the yeah. on the suction side of the wing. Wow, yeah, cool. They they had they had a hollow mounts for the front wing, mm -hmm. right? So we normally we're used to the pillars. I would say for the front wing, they're holding it, and you assume that they'd be solid, but they're actually hollow, yeah. and they actually wow. had uh, air flowing through there as well. I think Matt Summerfield had a, a really great article about that back in the day, describing exactly how they did that. Yeah, but I mean, it's no surprise to us. F one engineers are extraordinarily innovative yeah. and come up with some of the most tricky solutions we've ever seen. Yeah. And there's quite an interesting thing that uh, Schumacher crashed in this car once and he told the guys, the, the, the marshals, they shouldn't lift the car. Otherwise people would, would see everything that's going on underneath the wing. So he just said, no, no, keep it here, keep it here, <laughs> keep it down. And he was waiting for his mechanics to come to put the blankets on, on it. Well, I, I think it, it actually may have been you who commented on that one crash that Sebastian Vettel had in one of his last races for Ferrari. You know, not only was he not hiding the the underside of the front wing, but he had sort of turned it up and, and picked it up and was walking with it. You could actually see the individual static pressure ports that mm -hmm. were numbered on the underside of the front wing, yeah. showing anyone who cared to look what their setup was. <laughs> I think uh, I think uh, Ferrari may have been a little bit upset about that. He was on his way out, so it didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, so crashes are always great to see areas you usually don't see. So you can look inside certain things and you, you can see yeah. what's in there. That's been great this year. That's been It's been one of the best yeah. things, right? Yeah, for sure. I think probably the most creative thing I've seen someone do for the underfloor is not necessarily a crash, but looking at the reflection of the car on the shiny surface of the garage, mm. right? Where someone was taking a picture from the back of the garage. And that's how we actually figured out that Alpine had a Red Bull-esque skate on their floor, was that okay. we saw a picture of a reflection from the, okay. the bottom of the garage, which was kind of cool. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking about aerodynamics, I think, you know, Bryson and myself, we, we've we not been fortunate enough to work in Formula One yet, but we are, you know, 
tech heads. We're, we're big fans. We've got engineering backgrounds and, you know, quite extensive understanding of fluid dynamic theory. But what are some resources and some books for people who are aero geeks or maybe want to understand a bit more about Formula One aerodynamics? What are some books you might be able to recommend or some resources, you know, for anybody who wants to learn more about Formula One aerodynamics or race car aerodynamics? Uh, yeah, sure. So there's the so-called Huko, that's an, a German author. That is the German aerodynamics Bible. It's also available in, in English. Basically, wherever I worked in, in German car industry, people just always say, read Huko and everything's in there. Also, one of my former Audi workmates is one of the co-authors there now. And uh, it's just everything you, you need to know is in there. All the general aerodynamics, not necessarily motorsports, but the general understanding of car aerodynamics. For motorsport aerodynamics, as a real-time example, the best book is Adrian Newey's book, I would say, because he's really talking about the difficulties in certain race car developments and how they fixed it. So one book for the theory and one book for the real-life examples. And, and I also experienced that if you really want to learn how to design aero components or if you really want to learn about race car aerodynamics, you can only learn it in the top-class motorsport teams, so like in LMP1 and Formula 1, because a lot of the specifics are not in any books. That's also why I'm doing this with YouTube channel, just to give people a general understanding of how you think when you're designing this top category motorsport cars, because you can't learn it everywhere. And there are not many books about this. And any information that you learn would, I'm sure, be heavily guarded by teams anyway, right? Because that yeah. is their competitive advantage in, in many instances. Yeah, but it's it's not always just specifically to that team. It's also just, for example, how can I design a wing that's easy to produce so I can get it to the car within shorter time or something like this how can i design something and make little changes as quickly as possible without having to redesign the whole thing so this is all stuff that i i didn't learn at university i didn't learn in car industry in road car industry i learned this at the top category motorsport teams and this is also what gives you the competitive advantage because then you have more time to do an extra round of cfd for example it, it gives you more development time so if there was any of our listeners who are interested in getting into motorsport, and just to kind of piggyback on this question, uh, what is some advice that you might give them for somebody who wants to get experience to maybe one day get a job in motorsports? So the best thing is just go to any motorsport event that you can you can go to anywhere around your, your place or anywhere where you can get to. Always go there early. Go there on a first day, go there on a Friday, or stay late. So when all the normal visitors go home, you stay there. You're there with the mechanics, with the drivers, with the team owners. Talk with them about the vehicle. Even if you're interested in cars and there are motorcycles, just talk to them. Have your CV ready in A5 format in your pocket. Have some business cards and just talk to the people and ask them if they need help. If Sometimes there are easy things like they, they need to push the car somewhere. Just be there and help. Or, for example, help them to wash the car or clean their garage or something. And suddenly you are in. Suddenly they realize, oh, this guy is interested. He has some technical understanding. Can you do this for us? Can you go and wash our wheels or something like this? It always starts with the little things. I also started cleaning race cars and then you get into bigger things. I have to be honest. That's got to be one of the, the best ways to get in because cleaning a race car after it's dirty... Is actually a very good way to learn about flow separations and learn about flow structures around the car. Yeah. We've seen races, you know, in you know Turkey and F1 in 2020 and, and other races where the cars are just covered with dirt 
And while most people are annoyed by this reality, the arrow geeks are looking at fine detail, <laughs> looking for separation lines and things. So it's a, a very cool avenue. And that's exactly how I started in endurance racing. So I would go around and before washing the cars, I would take pictures of the rear wing underside, for example. And then I always did like a, like a newsletter at the race weekend. So after the training, especially at the Nürburgring, it's mostly wet. So you have a lot of dirty cars. You can see the flow structures around the car. So before washing the cars, I could take some pictures, put it in a newsletter and then send it around in our team. And then just say, I oh, see they have a problem with separation here. We fixed it like this and that. And so you, you just learn about these things. So that's that's really cool. And these are the small jobs to get in. And once people see that you have the understanding, they give you bigger tasks. So it's, uh, it's a good way to get in. You have a, a tremendous amount of experience. And we're, again, very thankful for you taking time out to come talk to us. Yeah, sure. Uh, we do want to give you an opportunity to, to talk about your motorsport consulting business. What kind of services do you actually offer to your customers? And what's that job actually like in a, a day-to-day -day basis? So consulting motorsport teams, if they have any issues, usually you always have people that know about suspension and engines, but you don't have so many people knowing about aerodynamics and even fewer people knowing about cooling. And most of the motorsport teams, especially in the low budget categories, have problems with aerodynamics and cooling. So these people are usually approaching me and then asking me to help them with aerodynamics and this can be all kinds of teams. I have, for example, land speed record teams from Bonville or time attack cars or rally cars or motorcycles, all kinds of things, even sailing boats and <laughs> aeroplanes and so on. And uh, it's always very, uh, very different projects. So it's, it's very interesting for me. Nothing is the same. It's always different categories. I'm also offering to customize aerodynamic parts for the people. So I'm not just consulting. I can also design parts for them. For example, if they need certain air inlets or outlets at certain locations around the car, I can design it for them. I can also produce it for them. I'm, I'm 3D printing, or I also have partners who can produce the parts with different methods if the customer wants to. So I can basically offer the whole package. I can go to a test and help the teams directly there, or I could just do it in an online meeting. Yeah, if I understand correctly, you also offer some educational courses for people who are learning, who are interested in learning more about the specialized nature of motorsport aero. Can you talk a little bit about the courses that you offer? Yeah, so I basically have one course online right now, and that is to introduce to the people the role of an F1 aero designer. Because most of the people, if they say they want to go into Formula One, they want to be either a trackside race engineer or an aerodynamicist. These are the two most popular jobs. But both are very hard to get into because there's very high requirement and because everybody wants it, a lot of people are applying for that. But actually, if you are into aerodynamics and into design and you don't have a clue of both of them, then being an aero design engineer is very good. It's a very good and I would say easy way to get into F1. No one really knows about this job because you're basically the link between the aerodynamicist and the workshop. So the aerodynamicist is basically telling you what he wants, and then you are designing the thing and making sure they can produce it. So you need to have, or you, you, you don't have to have it when you apply, but you learn an aerodynamic understanding during the job. And you also learn a lot about materials and production methods. So it's it's really diverse. It's really a wide area and um, it's really cool. For me, the advantage was that I worked as an aerodynamicist before I got into this role as an aero designer. I didn't have a clue about this job. I just, I just applied for it because it said aero. And then when I started the job, I realized what it is about. And um, 
in the end, I was really happy to do this because I had this aerodynamic understanding already. And then people gave me more and more responsibility so I could have my own aerodynamic ideas. And because I was the designer, I designed it myself anyway. At the same time, I, I could make sure with the guys in the workshop that everything works at the track as well. It doesn't fall off the car and stuff. So it's a, it's a really big area. And it's not just about designing the most efficient wing. If you're designing the wing, you also have to think about what kind of measuring or devices, what kind of logging equipment do I have to put into the wing? Does it fit? Do I have to beef up the wing a little bit? What about the wall thicknesses? Wall thicknesses for the wind tunnel or for the real car? Are they different? Does it work? So that's really cool. And that's why I wanted to promote this job with this course. So I'm telling people how to apply for it. What is your job? How do you design cars in a general sense? And it's basically like a preparation for teams. So when people apply for this kind of jobs and they did my course before, they don't come to the teams as a blank sheet of paper. They, they already have a clue what this job is about. And because this would have helped me when I applied for that. And the second course that I'm working on right now is going to be about Formula One bodywork design because the bodywork design is extremely complicated. Uh, for example, you want to leave the bodywork the same at the top section, but you want to change the side pod. Something we have seen this year quite a lot in different teams that they all change to the large downwashing side pods uh, while keeping the center the same. And I'm explaining to people how he designed something like that. So how do you cluster such a huge part in different sections? How do you... Uh, change one part and change the bodywork for from a high undercut design to a high downwash design or something like this. And yeah, that's going to be the second course. Martin, that's really great to hear because I think something that Bryson and I are really passionate about is educating and, and teaching people things, right? It's one of the reasons why we started this podcast to really dig into the technical details of Formula One, but also use it as an opportunity to educate people and for people to learn something. And so I know myself and I'm sure Bryson can say we've definitely learned a lot today from you. And what are some ways, Martin, that people can, you know, find or get a hold of you if they want to find out more or they want to be able to access your content? So I'm most active on, on YouTube. And you can find my Instagram there. You can find my Twitter there. Also my homepage, bunkenmotorsport.com. And also my eBay shop for my aerodynamic parts. If you need anything specific, just contact me directly and we can talk and have a meeting or something. And that is the best way to access my or to get in contact with me. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We were really happy to have you. Thank you very much, guys.